and welcome to Dr. Who Panel to Panel. This is Jeremy Bement, your host, welcoming you to episode 140 of Dr. Who Panel to Panel, your wonderful uh, Dr. Who comics podcast. First of all, let me thank all of you new listeners who this might be your new, uh, your first new episode of Dr. Who Panel to Panel. Uh, since the mention in Doctor Who magazine, uh, the most recent issue, 576, they had an excellent article about Doctor Who comic collecting. And uh, myself, along with some other uh, comic collectors, were featured in this interview and uh, or this article. And our, this podcast was mentioned. And lots of people have downloaded this podcast over the past month. So I wanted to make sure to welcome all of you new listeners. I hope you enjoy what you're listening to. And I just wanted to make sure you are aware that wherever you get the your episodes of Doctor Who Panel to Panel, there are a lot more episodes that aren't available on my feed. You have to go uh, to archive.org and do a search for either my name, which is Jeremy B. Ment, or do a search for Doctor Who Panel to Panel, and you can find all the old episodes of Panel to Panel as easy-to-download MP3 files for your computer or your listening device. And you can hear lots of previous episodes with lots of really good interviews with Doctor Who uh, comic creators from the past. Uh, writers, editors, artists, uh, there's a ton of interviews there. Lots of really good listening. And even though the news probably isn't relevant anymore, and you might not want to listen to me blabber on about uh, reviews of Doctor Who comics, make sure you check out those interviews because they are definitely worth your time to download and listen to. So, that's out of the way. Um, Thank you for downloading this new episode. In this episode, we are going to do like we normally do. We are going to check in with the news and find out what's going on in the world of Doctor Who comics. We will then go open the Pandorica on a recent Doctor Who comic strip, which in this case will be from Doctor Who magazine number 576. That is Hydra's Gate Part 3. And then we will go into The Matrix, where we take a look at a past Doctor Who story, or in this case, two Doctor Who stories from the past, from the old, original Doctor Who Adventures magazine, um, from back in the David Tennant, 10th Doctor era. And then we will have our featured interview, which we have on most episodes. And this time around, we are going to talk to uh, a longtime comic and novel writer Dan Abnett, uh, who is well known for Guardians of the Galaxy and his work for Marvel Comics and uh, his work on the Warhammer 40k novels, but he's also written tons of other stuff, including Doctor Who comics for Doctor Who magazine back in the, the early 90s uh, when I was first starting getting into Doctor Who magazine. And uh, he wrote a lot of uh, Sylvester McCoy uh, stories. So we will have an interview with him, an in-depth interview, talking about his career, his work on Doctor Who, and everything else that that came about in that interview. So, thank you for downloading this episode. I think I've said that plenty of times. So, with all that out of the way, let's get into the meat of this episode and check out the news. It's time to check out Doctor Who comic news, We'll just like we always do every episode. Let's start out like we always do with the news and take a look at the calendar and see what has come out or what will be coming out here shortly. We're going to start out by going to Thursday, March 31st, the end of March. That was when Doctor Who magazine issue number 576 came out. And for those of you who are Doctor Who comic collectors, I recommend this issue because in their collecting segment, uh, their, their article that uh, Jamie Lemon writes about, he featured Doctor Who comic collecting and, fe- and uh, included some words from myself, as well as a friend of the show, Paul Schoons, and several Doctor Who comic collectors uh, from all over the place. So it's a really good article. I highly suggest you check it out. Um, But it's Doctor Who Magazine, so I always recommend checking out Doctor Who Magazine. Also, along those lines, uh, on Thursday, the 21st of April, Doctor Who Special Magazine number 60 came out. And this, uh, although it isn't comic-related, I always have an affinity for action figures. And this issue featured is the Essential Guide to Action Figures, Part 1, 1963 to 1996. And... Although I kind of interpreted that title as meaning they were going to take a look at Doctor Who action figures and toys that were created from 1963 to 1996. Um, It actually features 
toys that are from the classic era of Doctor Who, from the the first Doctor through the TV movie. So there are lots of pictures of recent uh, figures that character options has made, but it also includes uh, some of the Dapole figures and things like that. So if you're a toy collector, you're definitely going to want to check out this magazine. It has lots of pictures, and you can see which figures. Uh, you can say, oh, I have that one, or you can say, oh, I need to find that one. And then on Thursday, the 28th of April, Doctor Who magazine issue number 577 came out over in the UK as well as digitally. And uh, I've been busy enough. I haven't had a chance to take a look at it yet, but we should get the conclusion of the Hydra, uh, Hydra's Gate strip and lots of other interesting stuff. So make sure you check out Doctor Who magazine. Also, make sure that you go to your local comic book shop for Free Comic Book Day. Free Comic Book Day is on uh, Saturday, May 7th, so that is just a couple weeks away, and actually just a week away. And uh, there is a brand new Doctor Who free comic book to get. And this is going to feature the Joe Martin Fugitive Doctor. It is uh, a lead-in to the miniseries that Titan is going to be doing. So you want to make sure you check that out, as well as uh, going to your local comic book shop. If you don't haven't been there for a while, uh, make sure you pick something up and buy something. Like I always try to stress, the comic books that, that comic shops give away for free aren't actually free. They cost the comic shops money. Um, granted, it's uh, not much per issue, but still, they're giving away a lot of free comics. So make sure you kind of uh, pick up a, a few comics while you're there or a trade paperback or something to show your support and uh, give back to a worthy cause that is Free Comic Book Day. So make sure you mark that on your calendar. Saturday, May 7th is Free Comic Book Day. Then the other, only other bit of news that I was able to track down is that uh, the Doctor Who special 2022 that is coming out from Titan Comics looks like it's been pushed back a little bit. Uh, it's been pushed back to July 5th. The uh, Titan just sent out a press release uh, recently with some preview artwork, which you can check out on my website, which is DoctorWhoComics.com. But uh, it's some awesome artwork from uh, Matthew Dow Smith. And I'm really jazzed about this issue coming out. Uh, writer Dan Slott is going to be, I'm sure, telling an excellent uh, all-done-in-one story. So it's, I, I'm a big fan of done-in-one stories, and uh, a special like this is going to be a nice, beefy issue. So make sure you check that out. It's coming out July 5th. You can mark that on your calendar as well. And that is it for the news. Let's go into some reviews. It's time to open the Pandorica on a new uh, comic strip from Doctor Who, and we are taking a look at Hydra's Gate Part 3. This is a strip that is in Doctor Who magazine number 576. It is written by Jacqueline Rayner, art by Russ Leach, coloring by Mike Summers, a new name I'm not quite familiar with, uh, lettering by Roger Langridge, and editing by Marcus Hearn and Jason Quinn. This Part of the story continues on from the last part where we have uh, the doctor trying to track down Yaz, who has been basically kidnapped. Meanwhile, Dan is trying to help this boy or figure out where this boy came from. And we found out that, that Hydra's gate or the Hydra house has a portal underneath that is linking the present to the past around 1942. That's where this boy has come from. Um, and then this issue... We uh, start out with the Doctor following this alien who uh, she thinks is the one who has Yaz, who, who kidnapped her. So the Doctor is doing that for the first page. And then we go back to Dan uh, trying to figure out about this portal. And he decides to go to Hydra House because that's where you know he's trying to track down where the Doctor and, and Yaz went to. And... Throughout this strip, basically the Doctor goes to find this alien and finds out that he's been collecting lots of other different aliens, of which she is able to free one, and uh, that's when she also finds out that Yaz has freed a bunch of them, or brought a bunch of them back. And um, that's kind of where the strip ends, actually, is with uh, the Doctor trying to figure out how to close this portal down. Um, as far as the strip goes, that's kind of a brief synopsis. Uh, as far as what my impression of this strip was, to me there wasn't a lot of substance to this strip. Um, it's a short little six-pager, um, and not a lot happens. Dan goes to 
to the house. Uh, the doctor is able to free an alien. Yaz comes back um, with a bunch of uh, other aliens that have been freed. And um, there's we don't even get an explanation of how the doctor goes from the point of tra tra or tracking this alien to getting into wherever he is storing all these from all of a sudden she's just there um which being a six-pager i can kind of understand you know we got to kind of take liberties and cut out stuff that might not be important but to me that's kind of important you know you can kind of use your imagination to figure out how she got there but at the same time it'd be nice if the story actually told you that um likewise if you haven't read issue 576 yet you might want to skip ahead a little bit but spoilers here at the end of this strip, the doctor has to go back through the portal to close it down. Um, I kind of felt this was unnecessary. I would have thought normal Doctor Who stuff, she uses her science screwdriver to close down this portal once and for all. But it's, it is what it is. Um, the artwork on this, Russ Leach's artwork, I thought was really good. Um, I think he still does a good job telling the story, capturing likenesses, and uh, doing a good job on the art. I just thought the story was kind of lacking. Um, I, there wasn't enough substance there, enough for meat for me to to chew through this this part, which I've kind of felt this way through the other two parts of, of Hydra's Gate. So um, the next issue will be the conclusion of this. I'm looking forward to the conclusion of this. So we can move on to another strip. But for uh, as far as this one's concerned, this is one I think I could actually uh, live without. Uh, one that you definitely don't really need all that much. It's definitely not anything super amazing. And uh, unfortunately, that's what I have to say about Hydra's Gate Part 3. Exterminate! It's time to go into the Matrix on this episode of Doctor Who Panel to Panel, and we are going to do a twofer this time, just because these are a couple short stories. Um, recently, I was able to get my hands on some old uh, Doctor Who Adventures magazines from way back when Doctor Who Adventures magazine first started. And so I thought I would do a review of a couple strips that were in there. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with Doctor Who Adventures, this was basically a, a magazine that was put out uh, I believe weekly over in the UK. It was put out more towards younger readers to, to kids. Um, each issue came with a special gift, uh, was polybagged to it. And uh, it was more of a, a kind of a magazine, like I said, made for kids with puzzles and crosswords and things, uh, informative articles, familiarizing kids with Doctor Who characters and monsters and things like that. But they always had a comic strip inside. And uh, so I thought we would take a look at a couple of the strips that were in these uh, magazines. So we're going to start out with the very first issue of Doctor Who Adventures magazine, which had a strip called Witch Switch, which was written by Michael Stevens, with art by John Ross and coloring by Adrian Salmon. And this is uh, basically a straightforward strip. This is uh, the t around the time of the Tenth Doctor. Tenth Doctor and Rose is your uh, doctor and companion duo and this basically starts out with the doctor and rose inside the tardis um with rose asking what different switches do on the tardis console and one of the ones that the doctor uh presses that he thinks is uh, uh stereo is actually one that miniaturizes the two of them so this strip is basically just a a fun strip of the doctor and rose being shrunk to small size and figuring out how to get back to being big that's it that's basically the premise of that strip um quick review of this one for a, a kid's magazine i thought that the strip was okay for what it was it's a nice short um romp of a story the the story itself doesn't have a lot of substance to it it's just the doctor and rose running around inside the tardis crawling around the tardis console trying to get back to a switch where they can become big again um and of course they become big at the end um so it's you know for for a kid's story i thought it was fun it was interesting entertaining uh, as far as the artwork goes this was i'm pro i'm guessing i'm not speaking for certain but i believe this is probably some of the first artwork that john ross did for doctor who or maybe even for his comic career uh, at that point 
Um, I thought the artwork was was good for for what it was. It's uh, comic strip art, uh, not really detailed, um, but it captured the feel of the story just fine. Uh, Adrian Salmon's coloring, the coloring was compared to regular Doctor Who comic strips, whether it be uh, in a comic book or in Doctor Who magazine, the coloring was really bright and vibrant, which I don't know of, since it's more for a, a kid audience or a younger audience, they colored it intentionally that way. But um, the the TARDIS, the interior of the TARDIS and uh, the different settings that they're at, the backgrounds especially, are very bright and vibrant and colorful. Um, to me, almost too much, but once again, Doctor Who Adventures magazine was not geared towards me being, you know, middle-aged white guy. So um, I thought it was a fun story, and uh, it served its purpose. The other strip we're going to t take a look at is called Mirror Image. This was in Doctor Who Adventures magazine issue number two. And it was a uh, story that was written by Jacqueline Rayner, who, coincidentally enough, is the writer of the, the Hydra's Gate story that we just reviewed in uh, the Pandorica Opens. And artwork with John Ross and coloring by Adrian Salmon once again. So you have the same art team. Um, this story, the Doctor and Rose go to a creepy alien castle where they discover a hall of mirrors. And uh, Rose gets grabbed by one of the images of herself in one of the mirrors and pulled in and the evil mirror version of her gets sent back out um, into the real world. Rose finds out from all the people that have been trapped inside these mirrors that uh, she's trapped there forever, she's been replaced, and uh, that's it. But what happens is the doctor figures out that the uh, the rose that he has as he's about to head back to the TARDIS or gets back to the TARDIS is not the real rose because she would never leave when there was a mystery to solve and people to help. So he finds out that the whole plot of this about the mirror universe and he goes back and gets a duplicate of him to come out of the mirror holds them all hostage, or holds that one hostage, and also threatens the the mirrorlings inside the mirrors that if they don't free all the people that they have kidnapped, he is going to shatter the mirrors and destroy them all. Um, so, like you expect, the, the mirror, the people who have been captured inside the mirrors get freed. Uh, the doctor then makes it so that the mirrorlings cannot pull people through the mirrors anymore, and bam, end of story. Um, it was kind of weird reading this story compared to reading what's what Jacqueline Rayner's been doing in Hydra's in the Doctor Who magazine with Hydra's or Hydra's Gate, just because to me for this short little story it almost seems like there was a lot more substance to this story in a one shot story than what we've gotten in the past three parts of her story in Doctor Who magazine. Um, this this story that was in Doctor Who Adventures magazine, I think if it would have been expanded out and done as a three or four part story in Doctor Who magazine, I thought would be a lot of fun. Would be really interesting, especially if you could expand upon how the mirror rose that comes out uh, tries to hide the fact that she's the mirror rose. Um, there are lots of things in here, lots of scenes that take a panel or two or three or four that could have been expanded out and created a, a nice segment of the story. Um, so this story I really enjoyed. I thought it was a good, fun story. Uh, once again, the artwork by John Ross. It's good artwork. It serves the, the story well. Um, Adrian Salmon's coloring in this, like the first story, was still bright and colorful, but it almost seemed to work more considering that a lot of the story takes place in this mirror world um, where you can have these different colors. Uh, so I thought it was good. I thought this was a fun story. I really liked this one. So uh, good job all entailed on this story. Um, I'm not sure how many more Doctor Who Adventures magazine stories I'm going to review in the future. Uh, we'll see. Like I said, they're kind of geared towards younger readers. So it's not something that, and they're not easily accessible to, um, especially those of us over here in the States. Uh, they're kind of hard to come by. So um, 
but these these first two parts, I thought they were a lot of fun, and we'll definitely bring them back around, you know, maybe here and there throughout uh, my reviews of past Doctor Who stories. So there you go. There's my review of Doctor Who Adventures Magazine issues one and two, Witch Switch and Mirror Image. You will be deleted. Uh, Dan Abnett, uh, it's a pleasure to chat with you today. Well, thank you for inviting me on. Uh, no problem. I, you know, I, I've been a fan of yours for quite some time. I'm most people are familiar with you from uh, the Guardians of the Galaxy, of course. But you have mm-hmm. had a really long, uh, uh, long and busy career writing all sorts of stuff. But I wanted to talk to you about your work on Doctor Who comics. Um, sure. I know, I know that was early on in your career. Uh, how did you get started writing comic books? Uh, I, comic books generally, I've, I've, I've sort of always been uh, a, a, a sort of a fan of, of, of comics. And when I was very much younger, when I was a kid, I used my favorite hobbies were, were, were writing stories and drawing pictures. And when I discovered Marvel comics at about the tender age of about eight or nine, I realized that uh, I could do both of my favorite hobbies at the same time by writing and drawing my own comics. So that's oh, what I did for years and years and years. Um, and... Uh, Long, convoluted story, but ended up after university, um, uh, almost on a whim, writing to Marvel's London office. Uh, I think I really, what I really wanted to was it was a sort of a look around the office because I had no idea what I wanted to do with my career. Um, uh, but uh, anyway, they they said yes, by all means, come in and, uh, and and visit us. So I went to London and I went to their offices, and uh, what I didn't know was that they were. Uh, had been advertising in the national press for an editorial assistant job, and they okay. thought I was applying for the job. So I went in and found myself <laughs> being one of a number of people being interviewed. So uh-huh. I, I just sort of went with it and ended up on staff as a very junior assistant editor at Marvel in London, okay. and and sort of learned about comics from the inside. Um, we most of the stuff we did then was um, sort of junior licensed product like. Uh, uh, Ghostbusters. That, Ghostbusters was the thing I worked on particularly, but Transformers, Action Force, and that kind of stuff. We were all, okay. all those sort of things, and we were encouraged to um, to write scripts. Even though we were editors, we were encouraged to write scripts so we could understand how stories work. So I did that, and that was a way of freelancing and earning a bit more money because the sure. the wages were not great. Uh, uh, and I, I I started doing that, and I really enjoyed it. And and, and in terms of my career, I did. I sort of carried on as an editor, both at Marvel and then at another company, for for three, four years maybe. But all that while, I was working in my spare time. My sort of second job was scripting comics for for whoever would commission me. Uh, and eventually, I went freelance and just just quit the quit the day job. And, and and I've been writing ever since. So that's comics, and later on novels, of which I've written many, and uh, and and working with the games industry and all sorts of things like that. But Doctor uh-huh. Who. My connection with Doctor Who, that, that, so that's how I started writing comics, but D- Doctor Who particularly is, is quite an interesting connection because, of course, one thing that Marvel UK did then, and for the longest time, was to publish the Doctor Who magazine. Uh-huh. And, and it was sort of the only uh, grown-up publication that we were producing. Uh, a lot of the stuff, as I say, we, I was working in the, what was known as the junior department, which is Action Force and... Uh, Transformers and, and Thundercats and things like that. But there was yeah. also a nursery department that did Care Bears and uh, Sylvanian Families, and many of which I wrote, by the way. Thomas the Tank Engine, all that sort of oh, thing. Okay. Uh, but uh-huh. down, the, down the end of the hall was the magazine department, which produced the very few sort of things that were aimed at a, a teenage or higher audience. And the, and the absolute jewel in the crown of that was, was Doctor Who magazine. Um, uh, and now I'd loved Doctor Who since I was a kid. And, okay. uh, and and they and they obviously they they ran I think it was eight pages of strip a month yeah um, and I had been working I so I'd done quite a lot of stories for um, for the junior titles and my immediate superior said to me one day said do you fancy writing a story for Doctor Who magazine and it was it, to me that was almost like my big break it, it, it sounds weird in hindsight but the, because that was like proper proper serious comics and, oh, yeah, uh, so, right. so so i so i so i jumped at the chance and i and i wrote wrote for that uh channeled my 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 earlier enthusiasm for doctor who which had many years since i'd watched anything but i sort of quickly sort of uh um caught up with where i should be and then uh when marvel moved offices we moved over to uh to temple down on the the, the thames this big office overlooking the Thames, and I was I was okay. by that stage an editor editing comics. Without the, the remit of the company had expanded somewhat, and I was editing uh, comic magazines that were aimed at a teenager above audience. And just by a weird happenstance, 
my office ended up being next door to the Doctor Who office. We, 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 was, we were sort of placed together on the top floor because we were sort of magazines rather than comics. Um, so so and the, the door was never closed. So basically, I shared an office with John Freeman when he was running uh, okay. Doctor Who magazine and became increasingly immersed in the uh, in Doctor Who. They had almost all the... Um, episodes on VHS, some of which hadn't yet even been released by the BBC, but they had copies of them. All. I used to borrow them and take them home and rewatch them. Uh-huh. And uh, that's when I started writing more for them. And I, that's also when I met people like Gary Russell, who was uh, writing for the magazine at that time. Oh, sure. Uh-huh. Uh, so, so, uh, so that was the sort of a very, a very sort of enjoyable period of, of, of feeling a great connection with, uh, with Doctor Who, which was, which was coincided essentially with, with the end of its first, in, uh, not incarnation, uh, that's the wrong word, but the end of Sylvester McCoy's run, so the end of Old Who was uh-huh. just coming to an end at that point on, on television. Um, and it was, uh, it, it, was, it was very enjoyable, because so I, 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 I was never part of the magazine itself, except as a freelancer, but I, I was aware of its comings and goings on a daily basis, because it was happening through the door from where I was. Uh-huh. Well, that's, that's, yeah, you're right, it is a very interesting story. Uh, you, you said that you were a Doctor Who fan when you were a kid, kind of growing up, but then you kind of lost interest in it or kind of moved on and came back to it, you know, to, to do the yeah. comics. Uh, what, about when did you uh, kind of fall off watching Doctor Who? And and was it a challenge for you? You know, at that point in time, there wasn't really a lot of stuff out on videotape or uh, no. ways of, of watching repeats. How did you kind of get back into it? Uh, well, the, getting back into it actually was was really thanks to, to 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 people like John Freeman and Gary Russell and Andrew Cartmel as well, who was uh, obviously on the working on the show at the time, who was in the okay. office regularly, and uh-huh. and borrowing their extensive and highly bootleg library just <laughs> comic. But no, I started watching. Uh, so my my uh, first encounter of, with Doctor Who was when I was really very young, and it was essentially the start of Pertwee uh, Pertwee's third 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 Doctor. Uh, okay. I was I was simply too young for for what what happened before that. Although I have subsequently seen a lot of Troughton and and, and extant Hartnell material as well. Uh-huh. Uh, so, so so John Pertwee really was my doctor. And in fact, early on, uh, I was I was like so many young kids. I was too scared to watch it. There were several several <laughs> of the earliest Doctors that I watched a bit of, and I just couldn't watch it anymore because I just found it very very scary. Just the music and everything like that. But I liked uh-huh. John Pertwee very much. Um, but it was really. The 10th anniversary, and it was the um, the Three Doctors story that was okay. the first one I can remember watching avidly from beginning to end, and being bold, bold enough and old enough to to uh, to just sit there even 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 through the scarier moments. And I loved it. And actually, actually, I sort of credit my mum for getting me watching it. She 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 was. I wouldn't say she's a massive science fiction fan, but she there were certain things she liked. So she she also was responsible for saying, "Oh, I think there's there's a show called Star Trek. I think you might like to watch that," which I remember watching when I was very young and enjoying. Uh-huh. And she also watched Doctor Who, and she liked it. And she said, um, "She said you can give it a try," and, and sort of uh, you know sort of uh, would watch it with me. But she, I, I remember her tell before I'd even seen an episode of it. I remember her telling me about Troughton's regeneration story and how impressed oh, okay. she'd been with that. And and so so I already had this sort of. Uh, Feeling so, so at that age, and I was, I was pretty young. I was watching John, uh, John Pertwee, and I was, you know, getting the um, the, the Doctor Who annuals every year and reading those, and and, uh-huh. and reading a lot of the Target novelizations, obviously, which everybody did. But you know, absolutely yeah. love those sorts of things. And I then watched it avidly as a fan, all the way through John Pertwee, all the way through Tom Baker, who I also adore, and most of the way through. Peter Davison as well, who I also think sure. is, is terrific. Uh, and it was, I, I think, towards the end of Peter Davison, the beginning of Colin Baker, that I stopped watching. And the reason I stopped watching is because I went to university. It was okay. as simple as that. I moved at <laughs> home. I went, uh, went, to, went up to university um, and obviously at that point didn't have access to a television. There was one television at the JCR and, 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 and it was, uh, you know, the chances yeah. of everybody wanting to watch... Um, uh, Doctor Who was slim, so uh-huh. I. So it wasn't just Doctor Who. There were loads. There's a sort of three year period in my life where there's loads of television that I never watched because I just didn't watch television anymore. It's too yeah. busy being a student, too busy doing studenty things. So by the time I came out of that, I, it, it, I sort of broken the addiction to a lot of shows that I watched regularly, and it was only then coming to Marvel 
a year or two after that, but uh, uh, during Sylvester McCoy's time, that I sort of made the, re- remade that connection. So it was, uh, it, it was it, Doctor Who did nothing to to upset me. It wasn't like I lost interest or I I didn't like the new Doctor or anything like that. I just huh? fell out of the habit for a while. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, no, no, that makes total sense to me. Um, when you started working for the Marvel offices and you know uh, got to know John Freeman and he asked you to start writing for Doctor Who. Um, is would you consider that kind of your big break into into to writing comics? Um, I know you said that you you know had done some of the the more juvenile, the younger type stuff, but you had mentioned about how this is kind of getting to be where the the older readers are. Would you consider? Yeah, you can kind of consider that your big break. Uh, yes, uh, uh, creatively certainly. I mean, I, 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 I compared to the amount of stuff I wrote for things like Ghostbusters and and uh, um, Action Force and stuff in those days. I mean, I, I wrote a lot of those material uh, compared to a comparatively small amount of Doctor Who. Um, so, in terms of professional craft, I learned as much from, in fact, probably a great deal from writing licensed products where you had to get it absolutely right first go around uh, yeah. than I did from anything else. But uh, but with with Doctor Who, there was to me there was a sense of excitement and prestige because this was this was something that you know i would have watched by choice and been excited by and it was something that meant meant a lot to me um mm-hmm. and in fact it was a it was a creatively it was a huge um challenge because uh when i was asked to write my first story and and in subsequent stories quite often John Freeman or whoever was editing the strip would say, we'd like a story about this. So they'd give me some parameters, which were great. But yeah. um, but but the idea of, like, go away and come up with a Doctor Who story, uh, I went, oh, yes, of course I'd like to write it. And then I would go away and go, goodness me, that's really difficult. The only time I can <laughs> remember uh, it happening like that was a few years after that when I was freelance that I, and I started working for... I was already working for Marvel. I started working for DC Comics in the States as well. Uh-huh. And I, so I was offered the chance to do a, a Batman story. Start, that was my first Batman story. Um, and just like Do- Doctor Who and Batman, both of them proved to be immense sort of intellectual challenges because I realized that these were things that I, that, as it were, there was so much of both of them. Yeah. It was much harder to find a new original take on a story. That uh-huh. hadn't already been done, and I realised sort of in a way that many of the ideas that I had been coming up with for stories prior to that for, for other properties were probably somehow inspired by Doctor Who stories or Star Trek or something yeah. that I'd seen before. And I suddenly I was working on, as it were, the real thing, and I was going, "Can't do that. They've done it already." And and that was uh, that was so that 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 really I think uh, matured my creative instincts in terms of really trying to identify. Uh, new ideas rather than rather than accidentally or subconsciously regurgitating ideas that i that, that were just in my system from watching other things so i think that was that was a really useful thing and it, it it taught me a lot about stuff i also you know i was working with a number of different artists but particularly john ridgeway who is amazing uh yeah. so there was there was this huge pride in seeing the end result i actually have in fact i think it is the the original artwork for the very first page that i wrote for Doctor Who, oh, uh, wow. which, is a, which is a page of John Ridgway, which is hanging on my wall. Um, uh, I also like the fact that it was the first, that I just sense, it sounds really weird because it sounds very retro, but obviously the strip was in black and white. Uh-huh. Everything else I'd done had been in the in garish colour because it was kids' comics, and, we, yeah. we, I, and I worked in the colour separation department, so it was all bright colours to pop off the page. And there was something uh-huh. sort of sophisticated and chic about Doctor Who <laughs> because it was magazine size and it was black and white and it was all those sorts of things so uh, uh-huh. yeah it, it had a sort of profound effect on me yeah and uh, i can totally see where you're coming from in way of doctor who had been around for so long but you know even at that point in time that it's it it would be tough to come up with a, an original concept or an original idea for a story that hadn't been done before that yeah. you know even bits and pieces you could say oh i'm you know that i might have drawn from whatever story in the past yeah it's it, horrifically difficult really and i mean I, and i i and i think to to be fair i don't think it was it was more difficult than actually anything else was it was just more obviously difficult because there was such a an ex an obvious extant body of work to to compare yourself to and i found uh-huh. it ever since i mean i mean obviously the comics that i wrote in, in that period between about i don't know about 87 and the early 90s uh was pretty much when i wrote all my doctor who comics but since then yeah. obviously i've done I've written Doctor Who for Big Finish 
several times now. Uh-huh. I've, I've written the, the original audios for the BBC, and I've written uh, a couple of Doctor Who books, including a full original novel for yep. them. And every single time, it's sort of been the same thing where <laughs> where I go, gosh, of you know, they ask me, and I go, yes, of course, I want to. Thank you very much. And then I, uh-huh. then I go, oh, what am I going to do? <laughs> what, what am I going to find to do? And uh-huh. I th- I think the other the weird thing about Doctor Who, and I don't know where I'm sure people have observed this over the years, but it, it covers such a long period of time, and such you know, so many different doctors, so many different producers, so many different writers, uh, and so many different formats. Just the television alone, but also yeah, you know, the comics and the novels and that kind of stuff. Actually, Do- Doctor Who um, is a is a sort of entity that is made up of so many different parts, and, and I firmly believe that everybody's headcanon version of Doctor Who is completely different because it depends when they started watching it and what sort of stories they like and, and this kind of mm-hmm. stuff. So, so yep. my personal take on Dr. Who I think is, 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 is not like other people's, you know, so, so that, uh-huh. that was the other thing I, I would sit down and think, Oh, that's a great idea. I've got a great idea. That's what I would like to see. And I would talk to the editor about it. And this, this happened with, with the BBC and stuff like that. And they go, Oh, is that really a Dr. Who story? And I go, of course it is. That's, that's <laughs> the sort of stories that I want to see because it draws on the elements of, you know, Pertwee and, and, and yeah. Tom Baker, I suppose, that, that, that meant the most to me. Uh, so that was something I found much later on when I, you know, my novel was a, was a Matt Smith Doctor uh, uh-huh. story. Um, and I think it's actually got quite a, quite a sort of Pertwee vibe to it. Um, and the, um, uh, all those sorts of things, working in the sort of modern areas of Who, uh, where it's quite clearly still Doctor Who, and that's fantastic. But tonally, there are big differences, and uh, and it, you sort of you sort of show your very particular um, pedigree when you start to engage uh-huh. with that and insert ideas into that, and people look at you blankly and going, "Yeah, I would have worked in 19, the nineteen seventies or whatever." Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> no, yeah, I can totally see where you're coming from. That how you know whatever Doctor you grew up on or gravitated towards or the type of stories that you yeah. uh, enjoyed watching, you know, on the TV, for example, is the kind of stories that you would expect it out of Doctor Who, the kind of stories that you would like to tell. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think mine, I mean, I, it's a fairly broad church. I, I, I sort of, I can easily name some of my favorite series and they, and they cover a, an awful lot of ground, some of my favorite stories. Mm-hmm. Um, but generally speaking, I think my absolute favorites feel to Doctor Who uh, were the essentially the unit stories where it's Doctor Who on Earth, on, on Earth in the present day, mm-hmm. and, and actually as he was with Pertwee when he was stranded there, and and that sort of very uneasy feel that there's something unpleasant happening in a world that we recognise. I love it when he goes to, you know, across time and space to yeah. far off planets and that kind of stuff. But if I, you know, if, if, if in the in the incredibly unlikely event that the BBC rings me up and asks me to be the next showrunner, that's what I do. I would take it back to that kind of very kind of uh, low-key, I suppose almost like a horror vibe, although I'm not necessarily a horror fan, I'm more SF, but but that sort of that sort of creeping dread, the sort of thing you get from, I don't know, the Autons or something like that, where where it's like, this is happening now, it's happening down the street, and it's and it's 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 sort of insidiously around us. Those are the ones that I love absolutely love the most. Yeah. No, uh, I'm right there with you. Those are the kind of ones that I enjoy as well. Um, one of the stories that I most people, if they think of your your Doctor Who comic strip work, um, that most people know is uh, the Mark of Mandragora. Yes. And uh, I was, you know, the first question, I want to ask you just a couple kind of general questions about that. One, I was wondering, was it you who came up with the idea for doing a sequel to the Mask of Mandragora or... I'm guessing it was probably John Freeman. I could probably be wrong, but no. It, yes, uh, as far as I remember, and you have to you have to bear in mind that we're going back a long way now. I'm oh, I, I totally understand. To That's why I, I'm, I'm not asking anything spe- super specific. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I, that was. I, I'm pretty sure that was John's idea. It certainly wasn't my idea to do a sequel. But he wanted me to do it because that, actually, weirdly, that was another of my uh, favorite stories. And we talked uh-huh. about it. And he said, well, I want you to write it. And and what I thought was exciting about it was the idea that, that it was going to be genuinely a sequel 
to a TV story. It was sort of, in, you know, not yeah. officially, 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 but it, it, there was a real sense that it was, it was a bit special that we were doing a proper follow-up and that we were going to be given space to do it at length. It wasn't going to be over and done with in sort of eight or 16 pages that we have a bit, bit of a uh, bit of depth to it. So that uh-huh. was, uh, that was a really, really enjoyable uh, project to do. Um, uh, and, and I think a lot of those things, they, um, John and and say the other people who had a an editorial hand in it uh, in the magazine, um, they they really thought about. They, they, first of all, they had to think about the parameters of what they were allowed to commission at any given time, which doctors they were allowed, allowed to use and which doctors they weren't allowed to use. I yeah. remember I remember writing a story for the Doctor Who Annual in about nineteen ninety one, where I was able for the, one of the first people to be able to use Pertwee and Tom Baker in a story and 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 it was like oh, i can't believe i'm getting to do this because at that point they said almost all the stories needed to be um sylvester uh-huh. because he was the current doctor and that's what they wanted to support but within those parameters uh, i think and with with such a limited amount of strip space on a monthly basis it wasn't really not a lot of pages a year that they could produce in strip they were yeah. very careful about how they selected uh, the stories, so that they you didn't, as it were, get too much of one thing. That you know, there was a there was a lovely cyclic rotation of the types of stories that they ran. So quite uh-huh. often, what they would wanted next, they already knew what the recipe should be, and they would find a writer that they thought could do that, and then and then commissioned them to do it. And then obviously, the the actual meat and potatoes, the detail of the story, were, were the writer's responsibility to work out. But but it, yeah. it was things like that where John would say, "I want to do a sequel to the Mark of Bandraker or Mask of Bandraker, or I want to do a story about X." And you go, "Right, what can we do?" I think that was also the one with the um, I think with the last one, one of the last ones I wrote was the one with the, the Sontarans and the Rutans. Uh-huh. And and that again, it was it was that was an idea. They thought, well, that'd be quite cool to do. And I and and that's where we uh, that's where we sort of brainstormed the idea. So um, uh, yeah, there was a nice collective feeling of of uh, uh, of of working with to the editor's instinct, which was I think almost always correct. Yeah, and as far as the Mark Mandrago goes, I thought it was good, uh, a really good solid story and a a good uh, follow up to the Mask of Mandragora. And uh, once that was completed, it wasn't too long before that was collected into a, a graphic novel, which um, yeah. I, I, back in that point in time, there wasn't a lot of uh, trade paperbacks or graphic novels coming out. Did you, did you feel kind of honored that they took uh, that story and put, it, and put it out as a collected edition? I, I absolutely did. And again, that must have been one of the first times that my comic work, I mean, I, but even at that stage, I'd written a lot, but none of it had ever been collected up or reprinted in any way. So that felt like a mm-hmm. really big, uh, uh, a big honor. And, and, and you're right. They, in fact, you're, you're so right, because I'm not quite sure why they did that. I, I take it as a compliment to the story, but 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 it wasn't their custom to do that on a regular basis. Yeah. Uh, so that that clearly was they felt that that was that was something they sh- they sh- they should do. So it was it was a it was an unusual honour to be bestowed. Um, I think I still have a copy of that edition somewhere, which is very nice. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I have one on my shelf as well. And that fantastic. Was, they they went through and they coloured it. <laughs> uh, uh, so you know, they, they to me, I thought you know. At that point in time, when it came out, it's like they're—they're they're not. You're exactly right. They're not reprinting Doctor Who comic mm. strips in any way, shape, or form. You know, coming out with a a, a graphic novel of it, uh, maybe it was just a marketing thing to put something out on the shelf to see if it sold. But, yeah. You know, or but I think I I would if you know if I was in your shoes, I would have been like, okay, apparently the story was good enough that they thought it <laughs> yes. was a good standalone, and also being a sequel to a televised story could be one other way of getting, you know, Doctor yes. Who viewers to, to check out um, sure. Doctor Who comic strip. Yeah, um, absolutely. I think, I think that was, that was probably, probably the way they were thinking, but yeah, no, I was, I was very pleased by that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. You mentioned the other story uh, that I was going to ask you about, which was uh, uh, pure blood, the one that had the mm-hmm. Centaurans in it. And it also featured uh, uh, Bernice Summerfield. Yes. Uh, and I was going to ask you, um, one, how was it a cha- or was it a challenge for you to write uh, the Seventh Doctor and Ace as a team? Were you familiar enough with their TV adventures that you felt you had a good grasp on their characters? And then, conversely, with Bernice Summerfield, who was not a television companion at all, and was you know was only in the the novels and the comic strip at that point, uh, how much of a challenge of it was it for you to grasp the her uh, character? 
uh, it was a challenge, like all of these things. It was a matter of doing your due diligence and your research, like and in exactly the same way that I would do on, I don't know, Thundercats or, or Galaxy Rangers. You look at, you essentially study the style guide and study what's what has been established about these characters, and then do your best to capture that. So with uh, with Ace, there was obviously there were TV episodes to watch, and there were there mm-hmm. you know there was stuff to. Talk. And in fact, I think on at least a couple of occasions, she was in the office and we got a chance to talk to her because they were always coming in to be interviewed. Okay. Uh, so there were, there were all sorts of people coming in. With with Bernice, it was harder, obviously, because there was only what was on paper at that point. Um, uh-huh. And so uh, it was the, what would it have been, the Virgin New Adventures with the novels yep. that she yep. was, yeah. Yep. Um, exactly. But uh, but obviously another visit to the office on a regular basis was Paul Cornell. So uh-huh. that was that was quite handy. And, and just everybody... That that sort of that sort of the core team of of people. Uh, so I mentioned Gary Russell, Andrew Cartmel, and and John Freeman was so knowledgeable that you could sort of ask them anything, up to and including what would this character do in this situation, and they'd have a good grasp of it. Um, so so yes, and obviously if you submitted a script where it, where they felt it wasn't wasn't doing the right thing, then 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 it then it got handed back to you for a rewrite. So it yeah. was it it was it was part of the toolkit i think part of what you were expected to be able to do but it was it was it was also quite fun to to, to it was quite fun to try and put a um uh, a ca- a character who is also known as played by an actor on into a comic but it's also trying to to do to create the same sort of vitality for a character that's only ever been in in a fictional context and it's not associated at that point with an actor yeah. is 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 also a, a a fun a fun fun thing to do i think um yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, um, you know, you're compared to your vast career of work on, and you know, just in comics and books and audios and stuff in general, you know, the Doctor Who comic strips are kind of a, a kind of a small part of that. Um, looking briefly at, you know, down the road when you uh, started doing some audios for Big Finish, um, that was quite a bit after doing the the comic mm. strip. Uh, what was it like going back to Doctor Who at that point, or, or uh, you know, was it like kind of revisiting an old friend by going back to Doctor oh, Who no, and, ab- and doing ab- a scripted again? It absolutely was. Uh, um, um, just, just, uh, I say, Doctor Who is one of those things. There's, there's, there's a few things. As I mentioned Star Trek earlier. The things that I've just loved since I was a kid. And so, mm-hmm. even if I sort of spend a few years not not watching or reading anything to do with it, I always return to them at some point and enjoy them. So that, so although. Comparatively, in terms of quantity, Doctor Who has not not been, uh, you know, an enormous part of my professional output in the last few decades. Uh, it uh-huh. is an important one, and it's a recurring one. And what I love about um, uh, those early comic strips, which 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 are so long ago now, is that they essentially gave rise directly to every other opportunity I had to write Doctor Who, because I was invited. Um, I, I, I have no idea of the date. It would be the 90s. I'm thinking early 90s. I'm presuming early 90s or late 90s. Goodness only knows. When is it? When I wrote for the Big Finish, anyway. Um, uh, I'm in the late 90s. They started in 99. That's right. Okay. So, so, so yeah, but, but around about then, uh, I got the invite to do that. Uh, out of the blue, I wasn't expecting it. I was vaguely aware that they were doing doing these audios, and I thought, oh, that's good. And I suddenly yeah. got, got contacted and asked to do one because Gary Russell was uh-huh. involved in them. And Gary uh, had liked my comic book work a decade earlier. Yeah. And he particularly, particularly, he remembered and loved the story that I wrote that that, uh, that uh, John Ridgway illustrated about the fossil hunter, uh, okay. who, was, who was a thinly disguised version of Mary Anning, uh, the, the genuine uh, fossil hunter, Georgian-era fossil hunter. Um, uh-huh. And he remembered that as, as being a story he particularly liked. And, and that's why he essentially arranged for me to get an invite to write for Big Finish, which I, and I, did, I did two for them at that period. And that would, I don't think that would have ever happened. I think it, it, for that to have happened, I would have had to actively campaign to, 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 to get a chance. So I got that invite. And then, you know, some years later, uh, uh, when I wrote, and it wasn't quite Doctor Who, but I was invited to write one of the first three Torchwood original novels. Uh-huh. Um, that happened be- again because again Gary had moved on from there, and he re- he he sort of regarded me as somebody who'd <laughs> come up with some good ideas. Uh-huh. Um, and I got to visit uh, 
visit the set and and uh, and the set of Doctor Who as well and go to Cardiff and all that kind of stuff and become part of that, which which then in turn led to me writing the the, the Matt Smith novel and doing uh, original audios for the BBC. So there, there was there's a sort of organic process that 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 essentially having uh, done a good job on one thing. No, even though it was years later, someone remembered and said, "We'd like you to come back and do some more," which is uh, which is very nice. Very nice to, to sort of be um, appreciated and valued on the basis of the quality of your work and, and invited to come back again. Uh-huh. So uh, yeah, yeah. But they, each one has led in turn to the next, which uh, which uh, is some, somehow very satisfying. Yeah, that's that's totally understandable. And it's it's uh, it's amazing as the different people I talk to, whether it be. Uh, artists or writers, whoever, who have worked on uh, Doctor Who comics, how one thing kind of leads to another, to another, you start making those connections of people and they remember your work for one reason or another. And, Mm. you know, everybody moves on to bigger and better things here and there, but you still have those connections and those contacts. And uh, a lot of times those pay off for people. Yes, and sometimes it's sometimes it's uh, it, it's it's uh, it's encouraged me. To, I mean, I when I wrote the audios, for instance, the first audios for Big Finish, I'd never done anything like that before. I'd never written for audio. I'd only just at that point started writing uh, prose novels. Uh, uh-huh. Up to that point, I'd only been a comic book writer. So, so each opportunity gave me gave me a reason to sort of refine my technique and skills, which is really interesting. I also remember that with the um, with the Torchwood novel, uh, which I enjoyed writing very, very much indeed, and I enjoyed the set visit and meeting everybody and everything. Um, huh? But actually, the, all we had to go on for the for the for the those first three Torchwood novels was our set visit, conversations with people who were telling us what the show would be like, and I think we got to see some of the script of the first episode because okay. they were still filming. The, the show uh-huh. did not exist. The show did not exist. They were trying to commission these novels to come out when the show launched. So we were yeah. basically working blind. So I wrote a novel, which would have been, what, 90 to 100,000 words long. I wrote that novel going, I hope I'm getting this right. <laughs> uh, because because I have absolutely nowhere judging. Unlike Doctor Who, where I could go back and watch an episode, I had yeah. nothing to look at. And I remember when we were invited to the um, this preview screening of the first episode in London at the first episode of Torchwood and went along to that and sat down and we watched it and, and at the end me and the the, uh, the two other authors who'd also been in the same position we all went oh thank god <laughs> thank, thank god it resembles what we wrote uh-huh. uh, there is no huge clash of tone or content that makes our novels looked after or vice versa so but yeah that was uh, that was uh, that was an interesting uh, yeah, again another interesting thing uh, another challenge to sort of um write for a franchise before the franchise existed, which uh, uh, I had not really done before either. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, yeah I, I have a couple uh, last questions for you. Sure. One, one um, if, if anybody takes a look at your body of work that you have done over the past, you know, 30 years, you have written for everything from Doctor Who to Star Trek to Guardians of the Galaxy, tons of Marvel comics, uh, uh, Warhammer 40k you've written mm-hmm. lots of novels for that do you have a tough time you must have an excellent memory because <laughs> I, w- I would just doing two of those alone would told my my brain would totally be scrambled trying to keep track of everything how do you I, keep track of all these different universes that you work on well uh I I'm, I, I'm not entirely sure I, it could simply <laughs> be that I've got that kind of brain uh, uh, and every now and then I do make mistakes. You know, I I I, re- I certainly remember when I was actually writing, when I was writing the Guardians comic for Marvel, I'd invented intergalactic swear words to use in that, and then oh. I was writing at the same time I was writing a Warhammer novel where I'd in- invented swear words for that, and I remember getting them the wrong way round and putting the wrong invented swear words <laughs> in the wrong stories, and then having to edit the scripts again. But that sort of happened, doesn't happen very often. I think. Uh, I think what underlies it is something that I, I I discovered probably by accident. I I am I am known as being prolific. Uh, in fact, to such an uh-huh. annoying extent that it almost seems to become part of my name. They say the next, and now we have <laughs> prolific. The reason I'm prolific isn't because it's for no other reason than I love writing so much that I'd be doing it even if somebody wasn't paying me to do it. Yeah. So my output is considerable, and and, and I find that actually I produce i think my best stories my best novels and my best comic book work or whatever it is when i'm under a certain amount of pressure uh if i've been given if i'm given all the time in the world everything sort of becomes a little bit sort of uh limp and and there is no sort of momentum but but under that sort of pressure so i always have 
several projects on the go at once. So it, uh-huh. sitting here, chatting here today, I glanced aside at my sort of post-it note of things to do, and I'm, I'm in the middle of a novel. I've got two comics to write, and I'm also working on a game. And the course of wow. next week, I will move between um those various things i'll spend sort of you know monday morning i write might write the next chapter of the novel but monday afternoon i might write a story for 2000 ad and then tuesday morning i might do some work on the computer game whatever uh-huh. now, um, now that way of working does not suit anybody at all i know that, 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 yeah. that, that not that's not to everybody's taste it suits me and i, I i've described it jokingly as, as I, I i i get bored if i stay in the same universe for too long but uh-huh. but, but honestly one of the things about having multiple projects on the go and having written so much, so much of you know, such a vast bibliography of, of work, mm-hmm. is that is that I I never stop long enough to go. God, I'm tired of this. I think if you know, if I spent my yeah. entire working life just writing Warhammer novels, I'd be sick and tired of the Warhammer universe. As it is, I love it, and I've written fifty novels. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. So, because I that's 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 the way my brain works. So so actually, I think part of the I don't know whether this happened because I worked it out or whether I worked it out because it was happening. That's the bit I can't tell you. But I, th- <laughs> but I think at some at some point I realised that actually I could sort of maximise my creative output in a very healthy way and keep myself happily occupied uh, by l- deliberately switching from one thing to another on a regular basis so uh-huh. that I, 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 everything stayed fresh. There was never a danger that I'd get writer's block or I'd just just slow down or get bored with something because if I that, that started app and I go oh I'll put that aside for now and go on to the other thing I'm doing uh-huh. and just move between them so I never and quite often when I work on one thing if I'm working on something and I, I'm going oh I'm not quite sure what happens next Where, where's this plot going I'll put it to one side and I'll switch to something else and subliminally at the back of my mind the solution to the original problem will happen whilst I'm working on something else because it yeah. frees up, it sort of unjams the gears. So actually, my productivity is directly linked to my working technique, which is directly linked to my enthusiasm to 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 be productive uh-huh. and to to adopt this 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 strange method of of, of working on you know jug- it's like juggling juggling stories, working on several yeah. ones. So so. Once I'd worked that out, which was a few years ago now, I went, well, if that works, do that. <laughs> That's yeah. sort of what I've done ever since. No, it's, uh, you're, you're, it's writer's multitasking is what it sounds like. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, last question I have for you, uh, getting back to your Dr. Who comic work. Um, compared to your, your entire career, the Dr. Who comic work was fairly early on in your, your mm-hmm. career. Um, how much – or how important do you think your Doctor Who comic work was to uh, can, to getting you noticed or continuing on your career, making you become bigger and more, uh, for your, your term, prolific as a, as a writer? <laughs> uh, I think, well, I, I, it's hard to tell. It's really hard to tell. I, I, it must have done me some good. I think... I think uh, uh, it, my, my comic book work in those early days clearly led to multiple opportunities to write more for Doctor Who and each thing being bigger and bigger than the last. And I yeah. think when you get to the point where you're writing, you know, sort of uh, the, 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 the major Doctor Who original novel of the year, as I did with The Silent Stars Go By, that was a, the big deal for that year. Um, uh-huh. That in itself is a high-profile thing, which, which, which you know, b- b- by the time I was writing that, for instance, Doctor Who was, a, was once again a properly global phenomenon. And, and you know, editors... At other companies that weren't anything to do with Doctor Who would go, oh, you've written a Doctor Who novel. I'm impressed. I love yeah. Doctor Who. So that in itself, that had that that sort of sort of secondary kick-on effect that actually it was it was quite a quite a quite a uh, an impressive thing to have done. Uh, and that is all part of that same continuum of of, of working on that. One, uh-huh. one of the things I do think about Doctor Who, though, in particular. Uh, and it's it's sort of shared with some of the other things. It's certainly shared, shared with Star Trek. I mean, I haven't written a, a Star Trek story for a long time, but in the nineties, I wrote Star Trek Early Voyages, and so it delights me yeah. to see strange, strange new worlds uh, on the TV oh, now. Sure. But, but <laughs> um, and, and, and this is certainly sort of true, I suppose, of things like uh, Marvel comics. But but what we're talking about with with there and Doctor Who is the, one of the best examples. Is a a um, a fan base for these universes for these franchises. Uh-huh. That are have enormous longevity. Uh, they are not sort of disposable. 
you know, you yeah. become a fan of Doctor Who, you pretty much become a fan of Doctor Who for life. Uh, and that that is that is, I think, an enormously wonderful thing, which meant which means there is a bond of camaraderie between Doctor Who fans, no yeah. matter what. All around the world, that's fantastic. But it also means that you know the, the the I don't know the Ghostbusters or Action Force stories that I re- wrote in the early '90s at the start of my career are probably forgotten by just about everybody, apart from a few kids who read them at the time who get vaguely nostalgic when they remember them, and certainly uh-huh. are not being collected. But the very fact that those Doctor Who stories that I wrote, comparatively minimal though they were, all that time ago are now still remembered, along with all the others that were produced at the time by everybody else, but they're still yep. remembered, they're still being reprinted by in the Pranini editions, they're still being talked about, you're still interviewing me today about them. Uh-huh. That, to me, shows that, not my stories in particular, but Doctor Who and the stories associated with Doctor Who are sort of sustained by the fan base. That that, that 20, 30 years later, they, that we will go back and look at some obscure comic and go, oh, this was a good story, I remember this. I think that is tremendous and actually you know sort of let's forget the commercial aspects of, of writing for a living the, the the real point of what i do and i presume every other writer does is to connect to readers and to have that kind of connection that actually lasts for decades rather than the the, the length of time it takes them yeah. to read a comic or a novel is a is a an immensely rewarding feeling and uh, I, I, that that in itself is worth it so so just that long-term connection with like-minded people, to me, is a, is a very wonderful thing. That's awesome. Yeah, you know, and uh, along those lines, just the, the connection, not just for your connection to Doctor Who fans, but um, for those of us like me, who's a big comic book fan, a big science fiction fan, uh, you're somebody whose name I know from Doctor Who comics, I know from your work with Marvel comics, I know from novels that you've written. You're somebody that I can follow along throughout the different genres and different, you know, uh, you know, Doctor Who or Star mm-hmm. Trek or Marvel that if I see your name, I go, I, I can, I know to myself, all right, it's a Dan Abnett story. I know I'm going to get a good story, you know, well, no matter if it's, if it's, if it's, if it's, a, if it's a book, if it's an audio, if it's a comic strip, no, what it is, no matter what it is, I know I'm going to, you know, get a good bang for my buck. Well, that's a very nice thing for you to say. I thank you very much. I, I do know that, um, that one of the things we've seen in the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years is, is is what has been dismissively regarded as the sort of the triumph of the nerd and that kind of stuff. But the <laughs> idea that, that when I, at the start of my career, loving Doctor Who and similar uh, science fiction shows or comics or whatever was very much a niche niche thing to do and, yeah. and and people were embarrassed about it and it was sort of it sort of it was very much ghettoized the fact that in the last 10 15 20 years uh it is it is cool to be a geek and a nerd and to love all those things is absolutely fantastic um uh-huh. which which is which is tremendous but i know that the 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 my what i've written over the years has been for so many different subsections of that sort of fandom across the board there there have been times uh, going back a decade or so, where I would go to a convention and I'd meet a meet a, uh, a, a say a Doctor Who fan. Doctor Who fan would say, "Oh, I really love your stories. Did you know there's another guy called Dan Abbott who writes for Marvel?" And I'd say, <laughs> "No, that's also me." And then, uh-huh. for the longest time, they thought there were multiple ones <laughs> who worked in different places. And it's only really in the last five or ten years when when there's been this kind of wonderful synergy where where sort of fandoms have a cross-pollination and connection that, uh-huh. that that I no longer have to sort of act as translator between <laughs> between one thing and, and another which is uh, which is very weird but yes for a long time I was considered to be m- many different people which is which is a pretty weird experience <laughs> so I, I guess I have some feeling about how how the doctor feels sometimes uh-huh. <laughs> yeah well definitely well you know Dan like I said I I've, I've been enjoying your work you know back in your doctor who comic strip days and doctor who magazine uh through to to present day so uh Thank you for taking time out of your very busy schedule because you have all those projects in the works <laughs> uh, to, to chat with me today. And I'm sure all of my listeners are going to enjoy hearing about the, those early Doctor Who strips that you worked on. And uh, I, I uh, look forward to seeing uh, more work from you down the road and uh, continued success. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for having me on. Many thanks to writer Dan Abnett for joining me, taking time out of his very busy schedule to chat with me about comic strips that he wrote 30 years ago, um, back in you know old days of Doctor Who magazine, back when I was first starting to read this strip. Um, Dan is very, very hardworking. He has a lot of uh, plates spinning all at the same time, and 
Uh, I was really impressed uh, how much he remembered about uh, his work on the Doctor Who comic strips. Um, It was a pleasure to chat with him, and thank you, Dan, for uh, telling us about your work. Also, thank all of you out there for downloading this episode of Doctor Who Panel to Panel. Uh, We've had a lot of downloads since uh, the last episode of Doctor Who Panel to Panel, and uh, I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoy what you're listening to. Lots of people listening to past episodes, and I hope you continue to listen to future episodes. So, until next time, this is your host, Jeremy Bement, saying bye. Doctor Who Panel to Panel, the podcast about Doctor Who comics, thanks you for downloading this episode. Let us know what you thought about this episode or of Doctor Who comics in general. You can find us socially on Facebook at Doctor Who Panel to Panel, on Twitter at Doctor Who P2P, 2 being the number 2, and online at DoctorWhoComics.com. Download previous episodes via your favorite podcast service and find the complete catalog of episodes featuring amazing interviews with creators past and present at archive.org. Just search for Doctor Who Panel to Panel. Thank you. Thank you.